We began to cover last Lord's Day, look at verses 8 and 9 this morning, having covered verse 7 last week. Just to refresh your memory of where we were at, we're asking ourselves the question, what do we do? What do we do? There is Peter's sober and very poignant statement beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober spirit, for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Peter reminded us last week as we looked at verse 7 of the reality of time drawn down. That really since the advent of Christ's ascension, the end of all things has been upon us. But every day that we live, Without doubt, whether we meet Jesus because we pass on from this life through the normal course of death or Jesus were to come, the reality is is that every day of our life, time is drawing down. We're closer to meeting Jesus this morning than we were yesterday morning. And that's a good thing. That's a glorious thing. But as we thought together last week about verse 7, we, we understand that there is something remarkable going on and there are things in this world that tend to come upon us in the days in which we're living particularly that we've not faced before. And it certainly does feel as if time is winding down very quickly. And we're seeing the things that Paul talked about, that Peter talked about, that Jesus talked about as being markers of the last days and the end of all things, as Peter puts it. I'm not setting dates. I'm not quabbling over one's eschatological view of the return of Christ. But the reality is just simply this. The end of all things is near. Regardless of how it becomes near, it's near. And it's drawing near every day of our life. But especially for these Early church believers in First Peter, and for us today, as the storm clouds get heavier, and yesterday my assigned topic was to preach on Second Timothy four verse five, that just that first bit, be sober in all things. And so it's intermeshed with last Sunday's sermon and yesterday and, and this morning. But I want us to look not repeating everything we said last Sunday about the reality of time drawn down, I want us to move on to verses 8 and 9, because if the, if the end of all things is near, we need to know how to live. Francis Schaeffer asked the question, did he not? How shall we then live in the world around us? If you knew that you were going to be with the Lord this afternoon, what would you do differently right now? If you knew that next Lord's Day you would be in heaven, how would you live the next six days of your life? Would it be different? I think that it would. We, we would all do things that, that 
secure the, 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 the future of our loved ones. We would make amends where there had been wrong. We, we would do things that if we knew we were never to be on this earth again, that would be different. And so Peter is simply giving us that what do we do? So what? The end of all things is near. What does that mean for us in practical terms, Peter? And we discussed that in his response, Peter deals with two things. He deals with loyalty and he deals with love. Loyalty to God, love for God, loyalty to others, and love for others. That is the answer to what do we do? How do we spend our last days how do, how do we move about this life as though the end of all things really is near? And so we want to continue this morning in looking at our devotion and our loyalty to one another. Let's pray. Father, this is a most practical and applicable and low-hanging fruit, if you will, area of living for us and yet father my fear is that it becomes overused and it may become trite and it may become cliche for christianity to speak this way but father i don't want it to be that way in my life i don't want it to be that way in anybody's life that is here this morning we need to know the truth and we need to know what it really looks like to live at the end of all things and We need to know what it really is to be loyal and loving to one another. So help us. Because we do believe what Your Word says. The end of all things is near. We need to be of sober and serious mind and a mind with a goal and a mind with an aim to accomplish that kingdom work which You've laid forth for us to do. And this morning we find in Your Word, Father, that You've laid it out very simply for us. And that is to love and to be hospitable. So help us, Holy Spirit, to understand how that applies in us and through us by reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ in that in answering the question with our lives, what do we do? The end of all things being near. Help us, we are dependent upon You, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice the text again this morning, beginning in verse 8, above all things. In in other words, of of supreme importance. Of supreme importance. If if you know that the end is near for you, you you tend to begin to prioritize things, don't you? If if you know there is a deadline approaching, you are not prone to uh, waste your time. You're not prone to do things that don't matter or have no significance about them. You are going to pursue the things that really matter. And, and Peter introduces that by that simple phrase, above all things else, do these things. With sober minds, remember from verse 7, with lives that are fixed upon God in prayer. Now do this. Give yourselves to one another. You know, I think Christianity is so often misunderstood. Too many people in the world take Christianity for a cloistered and tranquil religion that's intended for the sterile floors of a monastery. Not for the nasty now and now of real life. 
you've all seen the memes that float around living in the internet age in which we live and you know, which someone says, this is what I do. This is what my mom thinks I do. This is what my coworkers think I do. This is what my boss thinks I do. This is what I really do. And for Christians, we don't live that uber, cloistered, spiritual life that's clean and aesthetic and only deals with temptations and only deals with problems in a hypothetical way. We know it, don't we, brothers and sisters? We battle to love our spouses like we should. We battle to, to love our children like we should. We, we battle to love each other like we should. It's real. That's the reality on the ground. The Christian life is not a monastery. The Christian life is a battlefield. It's a war. It's a war in which we must always be thinking, in which we must always be analyzing our response to the temptations and the attacks of our own flesh, of the enemy, of the world around us. We, we must always be aware. As I've listened to battlefield warriors, and, and some of you have served in the military and we're thankful for your service, but as I've listened to men come back from battle and speak of their experience in battle, one thing always strikes me. And that is this. When you speak to a man who's been in combat, he does not merely speak of fighting for an ideal. Although he does. What is of imminent and and, and in closer proximity to him in the fight is that he is fighting for those men around them. So that at the end of the day, they go home to their families and to their country and to the ones that they love. They fight out of devotion to the ones that they love in the trenches with them, thus transforming them at times into fearless warriors so that their life matters not, but the men around them, their lives matter. And they are willing to do what is insurmountable statistically in order to ensure the lives of their comrades continuing. That is the, the mindset that Peter is calling me to, and it's the, the mentality that he's calling you to. To think little of yourselves, but much of the brothers and sisters, the family of God around you, especially as the end approaches. We are in a battle. And we must adjust our living, brothers and sisters, to be more closely suited and adapted to what the Scriptures say. That we do, as Peter is exhorting us, to live for each other. It's the only way that we are going to press on. It's the only way that we're going to make it through. And I want you to notice that there is a particular warmth to this. There's a particular encouragement as we hear Peter writing this. Namely this, that our comfort and our Familiar surroundings are, are not relegated to a location, not a, not a home here. But they're re- rather being relegated to eternity. To a time and a place we've never been per- before. That we, by our love for each other, are being prepared for that day by small glimpses of that place to come. By loving each other, by being hospitable to one another. We are preparing each other to go to a place 
we don't know. That we're unfamiliar with. That we don't know exactly how we're going to navigate. But as we love each other here, we're opening the windows of heaven. And we are demonstrating a little bit of heaven on earth and the the glories of heaven as we demonstrate the love of Christ to each other now. And I've talked to several people in the last few years. uh, You know Midland. Midland's so transient, isn't it? People are in and out. Oil companies moving people in and out. People have often asked me, what's it like to minister in Midland? The closest I can come, and maybe Peter could testify to this, is like a military town. People are in and out. They're not here long, right? It's a transient community. And so as a result, I've talked to people who've purchased houses where the husband or the wife will come without their spouse, and they go through the home. And with COVID, it just ramped up with a cell phone, and they're giving virtual tours. What are they doing? They're trying to prepare the ones they love to come to a place they've never seen before. They're just giving them little snapshots. You can't fully appreciate it until you're there in person, but I'm going to prepare you as best I can. And that is what Peter is doing here in the text. These are pilgrims. He addresses them as such. Don't forget that. And they're going to a place they've never been. Their hearts may be anxious. And so Peter is saying, listen, let's prepare one another by loving one another. So before you do anything else, be devoted to this one cause. And it's simply this, in love, give yourselves to one another. It's a vivid picture. Again, I think love is so overused and so often misunderstood in a biblical context that we tend to associate it with the fickle love of earth of Hollywood love, of convenient love, of disposable love, as our culture so often expresses it, if not in words and actions. But, but the word that, that Peter uses, and the way he uses it, Cleon Rogers says it is a strenuous kind of love. It is an intense kind of love. It's not just, oh, you know, love. It is strenuous. It is a battle. It is something that you labor and sweat over. John MacArthur cites in in his commentary that this love is a stretching love. It it, it stretches us beyond what we would naturally do for one another. Give to one another. Brothers and sisters, can we do that for each other? We need that. This is no time for the church to become loving as we want to define love or unloving or critical or or hate-filled with with one another, we must be loving even where that love would stretch us. Even where it would bring us into places that are not in our lane, so to speak, or not in our comfort zone. It must be an intense love for that. It's not natural to you. It's not natural to me. We are born loving only one person. (laughs) That's ourselves. And may I say that we are really skilled at that. I'm the most loving person you will ever meet if love is defined by loving myself. But what is not natural is loving each other. It's something that, that Christ must cultivate in us. And He has, as Peter has elaborated for us throughout this wonderful letter. 
It should stretch us out. Again, it's a a preparation phase. If you go to a a ball game and you get there early, you, you don't find the players immediately engaging in batting practice or in running the bases. They're not out there as soon as they take the court shooting three-pointers, trying to dunk the basketball. What are they doing? They're on the floor and they're stretching. They're preparing their muscles for what is to come. And Peter is saying in the text that as we prepare for heaven, as we move toward the end of all things, above all things, start stretching your muscles, your spiritual muscles of love, because that is what gives us the best understanding now of what heaven will be like and prepares us for the the glories of heaven. Peter also means it by the way he expresses the word and the grammar and the syntax of the word is something that is to be kept up. It's not a one-time love. You can't just say, oh, I loved you, that's it. I've checked that box. That's not love. That's duty. Duty without compassion, duty without love, which is not the way the Lord Jesus loved. The Lord Jesus loved and He loves to no end. It's keeping with the very definition of the word agape, a sacrificial love, a giving above and beyond kind of love. It's the love that the Apostle Paul had for Christians whom he ministered to. He expresses his love for the church at Thessalonica as the love of a a nursing mother. And you moms know what that's like, and you've done it so well. It doesn't matter what time of day or night when the baby calls, you go. There's a tenderness there, and there's a love there, and whatever the needs are, you meet those needs, and you help that child, and you cause that child to grow. Does it stretch you? Yes. Does it teach you how to function without sleep? Yes. Does it force you out of your comfort zone? Absolutely. But Peter says as Christians, we need to rise to that challenge. We must employ sacrificial love. Now, why is this? Why why is it that Peter, the end of all things is near, And if the oppression upon the Christians and the oppression upon the local church is what it is. And I think the context and the history and everything we've discussed previous to this in this series has proven that it is. Why does Peter talk about love? Love almost seems like something that should be talked about in peacetime, not in the middle of a war. But Peter knows something. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit who knows us, better than we know ourselves, he knows this. That trials are going to put your love to the test. Now I won't ask for a show of hands this morning, but how many of you can think of at least one time in your life, if not the last week, when under pressure, pressure of time, pressure of emotions, pressure of strain, pressure of lack of resources, whatever it may be, Under that pressure, you responded in a way to someone in your home that was not loving. I think we're all going, I need like 30 hands to raise at least, right? That's the reality. Peter knows, Peter understands that the pressures that we as Christians 
endure and are going to continue to endure an increasing number in the midst of trial are going to put our love to the test. It's going to be easy under pressure to become unloving. It's going to challenge our relationships. It's going to to test them to the limits. It's going to do exactly what the word indicates. It is going to stretch our relationships. And brothers and sisters, listen to me. I am not talking hypothetically. I am telling you right now that there are going to be strains in the relationships in this church as we move into the future because of trials, because of pressures. And the only way we survive as a church is to love. Is to, to stretch beforehand, to begin practicing it now, to begin praying now for the purpose of prayer. We have disciplined our mind with this sobriety of verse 7. And we are ready for the day because we know there's a great stretching coming. There's a great testing that comes. Notice what Peter says. You must do this. Keep fervent. Keep white hot. Keep strenuous like a weightlifter in the gym in your love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. I had to tell someone this week. If you're looking to me or you're looking to anyone else in This church, for perfection, you'll never find it. And I will tell you, I am the first one that you will see the imperfections in. Don't expect perfections. We are going to fail. There are going to be things that are done against your preferences. There are going to be things that are done that are outright sinful. There's a distinction. But in all things, your love must cover them. Why? Because love forgives. And that's what Peter has obviously in view here. That you would forgive because you love. You love because you have been loved as we read in 1 John just moments ago. I hope you saw the the songs that we sang and the scripture that we read this morning prepared us for this text. We have been prepared to love because we have been loved by the most outstanding example of love that you could possibly imagine. Brothers and sisters, in your homes, in this church, above everything else that you do, pray and seek for God's help, for the Spirit's aid in loving, keeping fervent in your love for each other because there are times of pressure that will, because we live in a fallen world, cause sin to happen. Peter draws on the eternal wisdom and the truth of Scripture. In Proverbs 10, verse 12, we read this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Well, I don't know if I could love that person. Do you know what they did to me? Do you really want to begin to compare what they did to you to what you did to Jesus? That's often a good question when someone comes to you and they want to complain about how they've been wronged. And they probably have legitimately been wronged. But I think a good diagnostic and loving question for every one of us as Christians to ask, 
do you really want to begin to compare that to what we did to a holy God? To His Son, Jesus Christ. It begins to make those things pale in comparison, doesn't it? And we, we, we can more naturally and easily then see the way of love and begin to pursue that. Notice what Proverbs says, hatred stirs up strife. Sin divides people. I can promise you one thing, wherever there is division in a family, wherever there is a division in a church, we can always find this, that there is sin somewhere. There's a seed, there's a full-grown plant, but sin is somewhere And it's critical, Peter says, as the end draws near, that we stay together. We need each other. This is no time for Lone Ranger Christianity, brothers and sisters. This is the time that the church, more than ever, needs to be united around the Lord Jesus Christ and committed to one another just as much as we are committed in marriage. For those of you who have been through the new membership class, you, you heard me say, membership is not a noun, it's a verb. We membership. We are committed just as in a marriage to each other for one another's good. And we are not going to walk out on one another. And it's imperative that in these days we do that. How do we do that? Love, because love covers a multitude of sin, a multitude of preferences, a multitude of of stresses. Love will cover those things. We might imagine that if the end is near, Such an apex would bind us together. But don't don't overestimate your spirituality. We are still fallen creatures. We still live in a fallen world and the pressures and the stresses and the pain of this life will inevitably produce at some point sinful responses. And that's where love covers those. We don't live in a perfect world. If sin didn't exist, then sure, I, I would say, you know, this trial should bring us together. But sustained trials often bring different trigger points for us to respond sinfully to different things. Sin always comes to the surface under pressure. Like that of a combustion chamber in an engine waiting to explode. That, that's how sin is under pressure. D. Edmund Hebert points out that love will seek to cover sins by forgiveness not expose them in other words we don't we don't perpetuate the division we don't perpetuate the sin we don't perpetuate the problem by by going and talking to other people about it and exposing them we want to instead forgive them should be a covering effort made by believers to cover one another's sins love covers what would in a normal circumstance, divide and it knits it back together. And we see this. We see this in the world all around us. We, we see it in military terms as psychological warfare. Where you bombard a certain group with, with various mixtures of pressures and information and disinformation meant to cause an explosion and a division among that group of people, thereby making it easier to conquer them. It's been used for eons of time in human warfare. How, how are they doing that? How, why does that work? Well, one reason. Sin is at the root of all war. 
Sin is at the root of all division. And they've figured out, and Satan has been perfecting this since the fall, his fall from heaven. He has figured out how to cause division through sin. We read in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is, it not, the, is not the source of your pleasure the, that wage war in your members? Is, is not the source your pleasure, your desires, your lust? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. What, where's the source of all of this? Selfishness and not love. This is the very opposite of what Peter is saying. I hope you haven't had too many opportunities to experience this, but no doubt some of you have had to use a fire extinguisher in the past. Some of you have had a grease fire on your stove or something that catches fire and shouldn't be on fire, and you've had to smother the flames of that. That's what love is. It's a... It is, it is the bag of flour in a grease fire. It's a blanket over it that starves the oxygen of hate and pride and selfishness that, that doesn't leave any fuel to burn. I know a couple of summers ago when I had the opportunity to visit Bill at their former house in Colorado, he showed me how they had gone through and done fuel remediation and cleaned out dead brush up in the mountains to, to, to make it harder for fires to burn. Brothers and sisters, that's what we have to do by loving each other. We begin to remove the fuel that would burn us down. It ends the war before the war can actually even start. Do you love each other that way? Do you? I want you to really ask yourself that question because I, as a pastor, I'm concerned about the days ahead. Do you love each other that way? Does you, do you love each other to the extent that you are praying even now as part of your walk with the Lord? Lord, cause my love to, to, to be a spiritual fire extinguisher. Let me begin to root out the, the undergrowth, the dead brush in my own life that I would be loving, not easily Able to make the, the spiritual good of others my priority. Without it, our relationships within this body, our corporate witness as a church, and even existence as a church, would be in perilous danger. Imminent and immediate danger. If we do not follow Peter's command, above all things, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love will cover a multitude of sins. It will remediate. It will remove. It will forgive. It will take on the spirit of Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if a man is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, or at least consider yourself spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of weakness, considering yourself, uh, lest you also be tempted. That's love. Bear one another's burdens. Be quick to expose and punish each other. Peter goes on. And he gives a second imperative idea here. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Again, 
it is related to that precursor of above all and keeping fervent in. Not only love are we to, to, to do above all, and not only being fervent in love, but being fervent in our hospitality. Brothers and sisters, we are living in difficult times, and especially as the end approaches, there is going to be increased opportunity for us to open our lives and our home and our resources and our aid to others, especially Christian brothers and sisters. I think we've seen this play out already. Sometimes in our country, but... Certainly as we watch things unfold north of us in Canada, we see believers going through tremendous difficulty. And I see Christians, some of whom I know or at least know of, showing hospitality to each other. Caring for one another when there are legal fees to be paid or when there are other extenuating circumstances and there needs to be a place to meet and people open their homes and great hospitality is borne out and shown. I talked to a friend of mine in British Columbia not too long ago and he said, you know, for really for the last year we've had to divide the church and meet in people's homes. That's hospitality. That takes work. That, that takes a willingness to, to allow people into your life to say, come on into our home and we'll worship together. We'd love to be all together corporately, but we'll do what we can. And they've been meeting in those ways. And others that are having to, to move outdoors and onto people's farms and people caring for wives and children of pastors who've found themselves in jail. Which is interesting to me. Pray for... James Coates, his trial starts tomorrow. But the Canadian government, ironically, has said it won't be a complete trial. They're only going to conduct part of it because the state isn't ready to present any evidence that he actually violated any medical research. What's the point? You know? But the church has loved his wife. They've loved his children. Pray for him. Pray for their church as they go through this tomorrow. Peter says you've got to be hospitable. You've got to be prepared to serve in difficult times. And you, you understand the context of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, these Christians really are. They are losing their ability to make a living in the New Testament. They are being cast out of their families. They are, they are, they are still living where they are from, but it's not the same place that they're used to. Everything is being stripped out of their lives and taken away from them. So much so that they feel that they are foreigners. And Peter says, this is the time that you reach out to each other. You provide for one another. In Peter's context, it particularly applies in how we as Christians welcome each other and serve each other. Let's be honest. I don't know whether it's sin nature or what it is, but we can tend to be kind of cliquish and only want to be around the people we're comfortable being around. But the command is to be hospitable to all. To be open to all. To love everyone in, in such a way that you would open your life completely to serve anyone in the body of Christ. Early Christians, uh, because they 
They didn't want to stay in inns, which were houses of ill repute and drunkenness and so on, would be forced as they traveled throughout the ancient world to seek refuge and shelter and food. Because think about it, it was difficult to even carry food in those days without the modern means of preservation of food or refrigeration of food. Uh, those things became difficult, and so they would need to stop and, and, and eat and stay places, and they would have ancient ways of communicating that they were a believer, symbols they could show, or letters and credentials they would carry, and people who had never heard of them would open their homes and invite them in to care for them. That's the kind of hospitality Peter is speaking of here. Under duress, and even persecutions, Christians will have to flee, be forced to rely on that which they can carry and receive shelter and sustenance from other Christians as they did in Peter's day. Is hospitality convenient? No, most of the time it isn't. Most of the time it takes a certain level of faith to open your home, to open your life. It takes work. Not knowing someone, not knowing when you might be called upon to extend hospitality doesn't change the command. Peter says you're still to do it. Yeah, but... Peter says, do it! Well, you know, above all, do it. With all fervency, do it. He doesn't back off. He knows it's inconvenient. He knows that it may be costly. But more importantly, he realizes it's necessity. It's literal physical sustainment for these early Christians, brothers and sisters. Our hospitality to each other is a matter of sustainment. It's a matter of encouragement. It's a matter of making a difference for the cause of Christ in someone's life. It demonstrates the heart of those who are truly loving as they are called to love. Love for the brethren extends to all the brethren, not just those we like or those we know or those we are comfortable with. The writer of Hebrews, like Peter, seizes upon this idea of hospitality and he doesn't just give it in, in cold uh, uh, imperative commands and exhortations. Notice how the writer of Hebrews causes you to think about hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. He writes this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. To strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing. And all of a sudden, our minds begin to fire, don't they? Have I ever seen an angel? Has God ever put anybody across my path to test me, to strengthen me, that, that I was unaware of? The writer of Hebrews says, you better be careful. You better be eager. You better be pursuing. You better be following this way of hospitality. Don't neglect it, because you never know. You never know who you're showing hospitality to. Now, I don't know how that all works out in terms of angelology. I just know what the Word of God says. He says to them, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Is it possible? Sure it is. 
But more than that, and above all, there's a greater sense in which hospitality ought to be shown. And that's to each other because we do know each other. And we do know what we're getting into. And we do know that, that it is an act of love and it's a supreme way of showing love to each other. Brothers and sisters, let me just close by saying this. More than at any other time since the ascension of Jesus, the end of all things is near. And I know this, that as the end of all things draws near, our enemy, the enemy of our soul, the accuser of the brethren, the divider of the brethren, is going to show up. And he's going to begin to try to create problems among us. But he can't do it where there is love. And he can't do it where there is genuine Christian hospitality. And the fire that he seeks to burn down the church of Jesus Christ, which glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, which testifies of the saving power of Jesus Christ, will stand. And it will defy Him and it will put it back in His face that Christ is King and more importantly, Satan, He's your King. You just don't like it. You're under His foot. Maybe not finally and fully, but you will be. How do we prepare? How do we, what do we do? Right? That's the question we began with. What do we do? By the way, how many of you went to Lowe's after church last Sunday and bought your emergency preparedness supplies and didn't pay any taxes on them? Because the state of Texas says you should be prepared. You should have a plan of what to do. There's a tornado or a hurricane or a flood or whatever. Well, what do we as Christians do? The Word of God wants us to be prepared because it gives glory to the Lord Jesus Christ by solidifying His body, us, His church, What's your current state of readiness? Are you ready to love? The next provocation of your flesh by someone in your family, someone in this room, are you ready to love them? Are you ready to forgive them? Even preemptively? The end of all things is near. That's what we're supposed to be doing. May God help us, brothers and sisters. This is not natural to us. It's not. Let's just be honest. Let's confess that to ourselves, to the Lord, to those who can help us become more loving. Let's confess that. That's not not me. I struggle. Would you pray for me? Would you help me to see where I'm not being loving? Would you help me to guard against a critical spirit about anything that would hinder love and instead love. Peter says, above all, even as you see that day coming, and it's coming, be fervent in your love, be fervent in your hospitality. The glory of Christ and the testimony of Christ rest upon it. May we be faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank You for such mercy and grace that's been shown to us, such love 
As the hymn writer says, what wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? May we stand in awe of your love, Lord, and in the light of such overwhelming love, may what we are called to do seem so right and seem so natural that we run to You, Lord Jesus, upon Your mercy seat, knowing that You are a faithful and a merciful High Priest. And not only will You forgive us because we have not loved, but You will cause us then to be able to love. Because You love us and You give us good gifts that accomplish Your purposes. And so we know You would do that for us. Let us humble ourselves and admit those things to You, to ourselves, to one another. Lord, I pray that You would make this body of believers, this local manifestation of Your body, an increasingly loving church. Father, thank You for the love that they already show. Thank You for the hospitality they've already extended. And I am so thrilled and thankful to be part of this. But Lord, the reality is we all need to continue to grow in this. We never arrive until we are free from the very presence of sin and in Your glorious, sinless presence. We'll always have battles to fight. So Lord, help us to fight them with the sword of truth. Part of that being our love, our loyalty to You, our commitment to You and our love and our loyalty to one another. So Father, do this, we pray, for Your own glory and Your own name's sake. Amen.